Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. We usually hit upon the history of the subjects that we cover each season, at least once a season. And these episodes are very detail and information heavy. And this one is going to be no exception. We are going to be talking about dates, names, locations, uh, shapes of craft, species encountered. So prepare yourself. And we're going to be starting at the very beginning, the earliest example that I could find, and work our way forward. Now, despite what you may have heard from the skeptical side of this issue, how UFOs never seemed to be a thing prior to uh, the 40s, you know, the flying saucer craze, uh, prior to 47, when Kenneth Arnold had his sighting, or Roswell, or cinema that was pushing the alien and invasion movies way back in the day that UFOs never seemed to be a thing. Well, that, arguably, is just not the case. Before we get too far in, though, a quick word from our partners over at Manscaped. Happy New Year from our friends over at Manscaped. The ball has officially dropped, but that doesn't mean that you have to drop the ball in 2023. Whether you had a New Year's kiss or not, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming have you covered for your much-needed resolution of bringing sexy back. Join the 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code PNG for 20% off plus free shipping. Let us have a toast for a new year, new you. I hope... You all have been using your crop mop wipes, as we discussed, staying fresh, smelling fresh as well. Well, I wanted to talk about another item that Manscaped has sent me that I've really been digging. It's, uh, it's wintertime, you know, it's cold, lips get chappy. Uh, my investigators listening right now, 90% of your locations, you're freezing your butts off. How are you keeping your lips smooth? moisturized. Um, nobody wants to wants to smooch chappy lips. And have, have you ever thought that perhaps you're not getting anything because ghosts 
prefer smooth lips. Do you really want to take that chance? No, no. But I got you. Easy fix. Manscapes. Lip balm. <laughs> Been keeping my lips very moisturized and smooth. Um, I have appreciated having a nice lip balm on hand. Uh, it is very moisturizing. It's it's kind of it's kind of tingly when you first put it on, which I really enjoy. And it's got like a a, a really nice minty smell to it. So uh, the ghosties and the sprites may very well all be here, giving me all of the EVPs. So let this be a lesson to you. How do you keep your lips? Nice and smooth and moisturized while on investigation. Easy. Just use code PNG at manscaped.com and get 20% off plus free shipping. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PNG. Time to feel sexy and free and get them EVPs this 2023 with Manscaped. Uh, before... We, we really begin. Just one more note. Uh, there is something I want to mention. There's something very special to listen out for near the end of the episode. So I am introducing a new monthly segment to the show where we're going to have a check-in from a paranormal investigator because I want to know what's going on in the field. You know, what uh, what are the different techniques that they recommend? Are, are Is there any new equipment on the market? Do you have any announcements? Stuff like that. So today's check-in has a very fun announcement for an equipment giveaway. And of course, instructions on how to submit for that. Uh, Jason Fife from Lost Souls Paranormal Detectives will be joining me for that. So be sure to stay tuned near the end of today's episode so that you can learn about the giveaway and how to submit to get you some equipment. All right. While we do see a multitude of stories beginning in the mid-1900s, there are written examples and or artistic renditions in the 15th to 19th centuries, but before that as well. We also see some imagination-provoking descriptions in the Bible, and before that as well. The earliest possible example that I found is not going to be accepted by a lot of people, I suspect. Um, I was able to find this information um, from two separate sources. Jacques Vallée's Anatomy of a Phenomenon, published in 65, and Chapter 33 of a Physics 370 course that once upon a time had been offered at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And that would have been around 68. Shortly thereafter, they would end up replacing this chapter or the entire volume altogether. That part was unclear. <laughs> so the reason that um, maybe a lot of people aren't going to like this information is because it calls some of our evolution into question. Uh, I believe the earliest artwork, the time frame for the earliest artwork discovered is round about 40,000 years old. I uh, Correct me if that's wrong, but I think that's what I read uh, some carvings in Indonesia. Well, I found this very interesting story, and it's especially interesting because it was included in military training uh, materials, and uh, I also found some online sources, some adjacent sources that were saying some things along the lines of this information is just not all that accessible to the Western world. So maybe a little bit of 
censorship going on here, which would not surprise me one bit. Uh, so just take this for what it's worth uh, and uh, investigate it further if it piques your curiosity. So in 1961, during an excavation in the Valley of the Stones, a professor of archaeology from the University of Peking made a very interesting discovery in an underground cave system near Lake Tungting in the Hunan Mountains. His name was Chi Pen Lao. What he discovered after following a labyrinth of walkways was a large domed room with glazed walls and some ancient artwork and carvings. An especially intricate painting on one wall depicted a group of animals being chased in one direction by men with what looked like blowpipes held to their lips. What's interesting about this scene is that the men are up above the animals standing on what has been described as a cylindrical, shield-looking object and have what look like elephant trunks on their faces. It's speculated maybe a breathing apparatus Maybe these are early depictions of these people's gods. According to another source, the professor reportedly claimed that the men appear to be wearing modern attire, which is so strange, but that's the story. Back to why this is going to stick in some people's craw. This artistic hunting party portrayal was evaluated to be about 47,000 years old. So, again, take... Take it as interesting information. Take it for what it's worth to you. Uh, if you do investigate further and, and find some, some cool information, please share it with me. I would love to know more. Uh, this next one is so cool. On the walls of numerous caves in France and Spain can be found paintings and renderings of signs and symbols that went unnoticed and therefore unpondered for a very long time. These paintings are estimated to be between 15 to 30,000 years old. We are talking about the caves of Altamira and Lascaux. Now, there's two parts of this that I, uh, I want to discuss with you. So there are multiple examples of circular cylindrical objects portrayed on multiple walls of multiple caves, which you can see for yourself uh, if you want to. You just look them up online right now, and you probably already have. Um, and it's compelling because it begs the question, why? What were these ancient humans trying to communicate with these very out-of-place symbols? These cave painters and their kin were a very purposeful, literal type, painting often of bison and mammoth and hunting parties and gatherings and people dying, you know, just a, a day in the life of a realist. So what are these round objects? Some of which are placed in very uh, interesting locations in relation to the picture, in, in relation to the painting. Like some are placed out on the outer edges um, from the scenery. Uh, some of these objects are placed right above, you know, objects or animals in the scenery, in the painting. And there would have been a very good reason to include these in these otherwise very uh, reasonable depictions. Again, the question is, why? In a cave located at Marcomp in the Gironde, there are a total of nine circular and what could be slightly tilted circular forms, making them more elliptical looking, located at the edges of scenes of various animals. One can be seen hanging out behind a mammoth and a bunch of abex, 
Another is shown floating around a deer. Another mural, including one of these strange shapes, can be seen in a large labyrinth of a cave system near the village of Le Cabrere, or Lot, France. In this mural, the shape is painted in red above the form of a body also painted in red. The person appears to be either wounded or dead, pierced with straight lines penetrating his body, which is speculated by experts to be spears. The person has an enormous cranium. His head is bald, beardless, has a pointed chin, no ears, and his eyes are two very elongated and slanted lines running up towards the sides of his face. The symbol in this picture seems to be flying above the man or settled further behind him on the ground like it's a perspective thing. The length of the object is equal to the length of the prone body. The same symbol can be seen repeated six times in a cave 40 kilometers away, also associated with the theme of a wounded or dead man. Now, the second part that I want to discuss with you about this is a rather perplexing mystery for me. And uh, I'm sharing it with you now (laughs) in hopes that somebody out there knows something. Um, I've spent hours upon hours looking for an answer, and I, and I am so sorry to report. I, I just don't have one yet, but maybe one of you do. So here it is. I'm including a document uh, in the show notes. I'll, I'll include the link to the document. I, uh, please look at this document because I want to know that I'm not crazy. <laughs> it's, it's not very long. It is a nine-page paper written by Ame McKell entitled Paleolithic UFO shapes. There are a few other neglected shapes of students of prehistory that have a rather geometrical quadrilateral structure to them. They can be found in the caves of Lascaux, Neo, Le Gabriel, and El Castillo. Some are elongated and rectangular with humps in the middle, or domes, possibly. But that's not even the mystery here. McKell includes in his paper a visual legend of the symbols he is talking about. To quote him directly about those, the reproductions which I give here are faithful enlargements of the drawings done by Professor André Leroy Gorhan, who at the present time is the top authority in this whole field. Many of these can be checked against the various special studies that have been devoted to each of the caves. And he includes um, the rest of the symbols in this legend, around about like 11 or 12 more, in addition to the ones that we would already be familiar with. Dudes, when I tell you <laughs> some of these symbols, my, my mouth was on the floor. I, I just don't know. I'm not sure how much more literal cavemen could get that they were seeing UFOs. Uh, a, a bunch, a a bunch, a bunch (laughs) look like the flying saucer that I would draw if I were pressed to do so right now. Uh, And and that's not even the, mm, no. If you are looking at this document, I implore you to please look at the last seven. It's L through S. Someone tell me that one of those does not look like a figure standing beneath a structure with a ladder and an antenna. Someone tell me that one of those does not look like two flying saucers flying side by side with like 
stardust or, or some kind of movement out the back showing movement. You guys, I can't, mm, my brain might have broke that day when I saw, it might have, it might have fallen out. Maybe that's what happened. Simply describing these things to you is, it, it does not do it justice. Um, okay, so here's the mystery part of this. All of this seems legit. Like the paper, the history, the details included, the fact that yes, some of the symbols found in his symbol legend, his key, we can all look up right now. We can we can all watch videos and photos of these wall, you know, of the wall paintings. But I cannot seem to find real world depictions of these other more sorcery like uh, machinery type symbols that Mikkel says that he copied from Leroy Gorhan. So where did these come from? Are they valid reproductions? And if they are valid reproductions, why is no one talking about them? Uh, furthermore, if they are not valid reproductions and uh, Mikkel or, or Leroy Gorhan just made them up for some reason, why are no skeptics calling hoax on this paper? What did I stumble into? I, and I've asked three separate people in my life who are excellent researchers, and, and they're very interested in this subject. Um, they were already aware of the paintings at Altamira and Lescaux. They have never seen these other symbols in their life. This mystery has been driving me crazy, uh, and now I am gifting it to you. There you go. Some of the earliest rock art of the Saharan people can be found in the Tassili Plateau and is estimated to be about 8,000 to 10,000 years old. The evolution of the depictions of daily life and spiritual landscapes in the area at the time are numerous and varied, but I want to direct your attention to a span of time called the Roundhead Period. The majority of these rock paintings portray people with round, featureless heads and formless bodies. Some of them portray these figures flying through space or bowing before figures that tower above them. Now, uh, I'm not going to get into detail on this next part because, uh, you know, let's get to the modern day stuff while we're still young. But wanted to mention that it has been theorized by some in the UFO world that the stories of Greek mythology are more historical and less fictional, you know, writing legends of flying chariots and kerfuffles amongst the gods in the sky and the sea. Eric von Daniken, in his book, Alien Contact in Ancient Greece, posits that the Greek gods themselves were extraterrestrials, and people were just writing about them and what they did. They flew, had powerful weapons, inhuman magical powers and strength, and are distinctly above and beyond the basic human, though always interjecting themselves into our affairs. I mean, Zeus literally lived in the clouds and threw thunderbolts. So, all right, uh, that is the really ancient stuff. Let's get into some more recent stuff. 218 BC. <laughs> I swear to you, this is this is going to go a lot faster. We're, we're going to skim right through history. 218 BC. This account took place in Rome, Italy. Titus Livius Patavinus, or Livy, is regarded by scholars as one of the three great Roman historians. His work chronicled the history of Rome, its people, and its civilization. His work is noteworthy, he is respected, and he also saw a UFO once. 
He wrote an account that he described as many prodigies, which in this case just meant amazing or, you know, unusual things, uh, that included phantom ships that were seen gleaming in the sky. 85 BC, Lucius Valerius and Caius Marius described a burning shield scattering sparks across the sky. 74 BC, Plutarch of Chironia wrote of an aerial mystery that took place during a battle between the armies of Lucullus and Mithridates VI in Asia. He wrote of a huge, seemingly a light or a fire object in the sky between the armies that was wine vessel shaped and silver in color. By wine vessel, did he mean ship-like, elongated and structured? By silver, did he mean metallic? By a light, did he mean it had lights? <laughs> These people are going to be using um, the terms and concepts that they have at their disposal at the time to describe something that they've never seen. Let's take a moment to peek at some excerpts interpreted from the Bible as possible ufolic events. Judges 2040. But when the flame began to arise up out of the city with a pillar of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the flame of the city ascended up to heaven. 2 Kings 2.11. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Matthew 2.9-2.10. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. It takes some interpretation for me personally. I I see what they're talking about, though, and I, I do think it's cool that we can use this very old text in this discussion. Uh, in the year 584, St. Gregory, the bishop of Tours in France, recorded various sightings in his Historia Francorum. There appeared in the sky brilliant rays of light which seemed to cross and collide with one another. He also described golden globes which flashed speedily across the skies of France. 740. Several sets of Irish annals all briefly mention a strange sight. Ships in the air with their crews intact. Though the different annals describe this event slightly differently, they all agree on the ships and the crew in the air part, thus being separate descriptions of the same event, remarkable enough to be recorded by them all. 1180. In Japan, something similar to a flying saucer was seen, though they describe it as a flying earthenware vessel. You know what earthenware is? It's a saucer. (laughs) It's a dish. Um, The object, or UFO, was heading in a northeast direction from a mountain in the key province. It suddenly changed direction and vanished below the horizon, leaving a luminous trail. Ooh, uh, yeah, this is a good one. During his first journey across the Atlantic Ocean in 1492, Christopher Columbus reported many strange sightings within the Bermuda Triangle. The first of these was that the stars appeared to move around in the sky. Another was that he saw a light moving up and down in the distance. When he asked his crew to look at the light, it vanished and reappeared many times. The most unusual thing that Columbus says that he saw was a glowing object coming out of the water and shooting towards the sky. Now, most skeptics 
are going to dismiss this next one. They already do. Um, or they call it, you know, uh, the result of a sundog, which I think is worse. Let's talk about it. It's a good one. In 1561, the town of Nuremberg watched a celestial battle take place over their city. According to the local broadsheet, which is like a big poster for announcements and news and political views, advertisements, um, and included the woodcut image they carved of what it looked like, many men and women saw what was described as an aerial battle out of the sun, followed by the appearance of a large black triangular object and spheres falling to earth in clouds of smoke. Witnesses observed hundreds of spheres, cylinders, and other odd-shaped objects that moved erratically overhead. The objects were of various shapes, including crosses, with and without spheres attached to the arms, small spheres, large crescents, a black spear, and cylindrical objects from which several small spheres emerged and darted around the sky at dawn. The picture that they carved for this thing to use for the print is really, really cool. It's it's so detailed. Um, and they didn't just carve these basically big-ass stamps just for, you know, shits and giggles. Like, an event took place that was worth reporting. And, uh, you know, it was important enough to make one of these things for it. Uh, the event that took place in Basel, Switzerland in 1566, seems to always go hand in hand with the Nuremberg event. There were some other celestial uh, phenomena that they reported that year, but the one of UFO interest took place on August 7th, where large black spheres were seen coming and going with great speed and precipitation before the sun and chattered as if they led a fight. Many of them were fiery red and soon crumbled and extinguished. 1639 saw the United States' first documented UFO sighting with one James Everill, a sober, discreet man of good reputation and two others in a boat on the muddy river at night. They watched as a great light, after moving back and forth across the river, flamed up when it stood still, measuring about three yards square. As quick as an arrow, it continued its back and forth up and down the river for another two to three hours. When it finally stopped and whatever it was vanished, the men found themselves about a mile back upstream near where they had started their journey. Weird. It's reported other credible people in the area saw the same light after these men's sighting. In 1668, a newspaper in Slovakia called the Lavoka Chronicles released an article where witnesses described seeing a giant lizard flying across the sky. Uh, I mean, again, you know, <laughs> these people have never seen a plane, a helicopter, a drone, nothing, you know, mechanical like that. They're going to use the best terms that they can for that time period. Um, it, it could have been something else, you know, maybe like a, a meteor with its tail streaming behind it. I, hard to say, hundreds of years later, but fun to ponder. Now, uh, oh, this next one is an interesting story, and it was new to me. Never heard it before. In 1961, Antonio Fanolio, who is said to have been a reputable professor from the University of Bologna, Italy, wrote an article relaying a mysterious account he said that he discovered in the archives of the French Academy of Science in Paris. It regards a downed object and encounter supposedly witnessed by numerous people in 1790. 
What Fanolio discovered and then wrote about came from an investigative report allegedly written by police inspector LaBeouf, and that translation is as follows. At 5 a.m. on June 12th, several farmers caught sight of an enormous globe which seemed surrounded with flames. First, they thought it was perhaps a balloon that had caught fire, but the great velocity and the whistling sound which came from that body caught their attention. The globe slowed down, made some oscillations, and precipitated itself towards the top of a hill, unearthing plants along the slope. The heat which emanated from it was so intense that soon the grass and the small tree started burning. The peasants succeeded in controlling the fire, which threatened to spread to the whole area. In the evening, this sphere was still warm and something extraordinary happened, not to say an incredible thing. The witnesses were two mayors, a doctor, and three other authorities who confirmed my report, in addition to the dozens of peasants who were present. This sphere, which would have been large enough to contain a carriage, had not suffered from all that flight. It excited so much curiosity that people came from all parts to see it. Then, all of a sudden, a kind of door opened, and there is the interesting thing. A person like us came out of it, but this person was dressed in a strange way, wearing a tight-fitting suit, and seeing all that crowd, said some words which were not understood and fled into the woods. Instinctively, the peasants stepped back in fear, and this saved them because soon after that, the sphere exploded in silence, which is such a strange detail. The sphere exploded in silence, throwing pieces everywhere, and these pieces burned until they were reduced to powder. Researches were initiated to find the mysterious man, but he seemed to have dissolved. People would try to uh, retrieve this mysterious document. Um, The Academy of Science would say that they had no such document. It didn't exist. They don't have it. Jacques Vallée uh, cited this story in a later work of his, and he made it seem like he himself had laid eyes on it, that he had seen it. Um, if, if it is authentic, it seems to have vanished, much like the object and the being it depicts. 1808, Cynthia Everett of Camden, Maine, reported something she mistook as a meteor initially. She said, About 10 o'clock I saw a very strange appearance. It was a light which proceeded from the east. At the first sight I thought it was a meteor, but from its motion I soon perceived it was not. It seemed to dart at first as quickly as light and appeared to be in the atmosphere, but lowered toward the ground and kept on at an equal distance, sometimes ascending and sometimes descending. 1860, the entire city of Wilmington, Delaware, was lit up by a pale blue light, and people looked up and reportedly saw a 200-foot-long object flying at approximately 100 feet altitude. They would publish an article about it in the Wilmington Tribune, detailing out that the craft moved in a straight line without any inclination downwards, that a pitch-black cloud of some sort flew in front of the object, and that behind it, spaced 100 feet apart, flew three very red and glowing balls. A fourth ball then appeared as the object turned toward the Delaware River. It was also noted in the article that the craft gave off sparkles, like in the manner of a rocket. The sighting concluded when the object continued over the river, flying east until it disappeared from view. In 1896, um, there there seemed to be a bit of a, a wave of 
UFO sightings and attempted abduction reports and um, a, a bit of hysteria, maybe. <laughs> I, I say that because a lot of uh, verified hoaxed accounts came out of 96 and 97, 1896 and 1897. Um, but there's one story that I came across that, that caught my attention and I wanted to share because it very well could be the first documented claim of attempted abduction. So on November 27, 1896, Colonel H.G. Shaw, a Civil War veteran, hero, and journalist, wrote of a firsthand experience he'd had with his friend, a man named Camille Spooner, a reputable fellow from a fairly well-to-do family. Shaw recounted that he and Camille were about 50 miles south of Sacramento in a horse-drawn buggy on their way to the Fresno Citrus Fair when the horse suddenly stopped and gave a snort of terror. Shaw says they encountered three beings described as seven feet tall, naked, and very slender. They had large shiny eyes, small hands, nailless fingers, and very long feet that functioned much like a monkey's feet. They spoke to each other by warbling. According to Shaw, one of them attempted to lift him, he thought in order to carry him away, but he said it lacked the strength to complete the kidnapping. <laughs> Shaw be like, and eh, dead weight. <laughs> um, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, I would like to think that someone like Shaw would tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but also, you know, newspapers and journalists in the late 1800s were... Um, you know, could be a little liberal with their details sometimes. Uh, still an interesting one. It, it is interesting. All right. Uh, in 1909, mystery airships, strange moving lights, and some solid objects in the sky were seen around Otago and elsewhere in New Zealand and were reported to the papers. That same year, Mr. and Mrs. William Forsyth in Rhode Island said they were putting up Christmas decorations and were attracted by two red lights moving strangely in the sky. After a minute of watching them, they were able to make out a large object which appeared to be in front of the lights, moving at such high speeds that they could only get a superficial view of it, just enough to make out that there was something there. They watched the show until the lights faded out in the haze on the southern horizon. During World War II, small metallic spheres and colorful balls of light, referred to as Foo Fighters, were often and repeatedly spotted worldwide by bomber crews. This was a common sighting by these military members. 1941, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, first responders and a Baptist minister allegedly viewed a crashed spacecraft and its three occupants. Um, this is one that we will be exploring later in the season, so I'm going to just leave it at that for now. 1947 brought us the Roswell incident and Kenneth Arnold sighting near Mount Rainier, both of which we will be talking about later in the season. 1947 also brought us Project Blue Book, the U.S. Air Force's proper foray into investigation of the UFO phenomenon. Guess what? Well, we're going to be talking about it later. In 1950, Captain Jack Adams and his first officer observed a disc-shaped object fly above their airliner in an arc, both reporting having seen portholes in the sides of the thing. In the same year, the famous McMinnville UFO photos were taken and still haven't been debunked. 1952, a bunch of UFOs flew over Washington, D.C. Jets were scrambled to the area. Uh, so this was front page news worldwide, <laughs> kind of kind of a big deal. So the next time that somebody 
says to you, well, if aliens were real, you know, why aren't they landing on the White House lawn? Well, you know what? They got real close, and then we sent fighter jets up to get them. So uh, in 57, in Leveland, Texas, people reported seeing strange lights in the skies. Car engines cut out. Lights died in the town. Police initially thought it was a hoax, but then they saw the lights, too, and were like, oh, snap. Project Blue Book investigated and claimed it was an electrical storm and ball lightning that caused electrical malfunction despite there being no thunderstorms reported in the area that night, which does make me curious and wonder about this list of events that Project Blue Book said that they did explain. You know, just uh, makes me wonder, because if this one has such glaring holes in it, uh, you know, I have doubts. People witnessed a mushroom-shaped object over Redmond, Oregon in 1959. Officer Robert Dickerson spotted it moving side to side in the sky, glowing green, yellow, crimson, and blue, and bright enough, he said, to illuminate nearby treetops. It hovered in the sky for over an hour. It pinged the FAA's radar, and the Air Force sent six jet interceptors from Portland to check it out. Six days later, the FAA would tell everyone that what they saw was Venus. Man, the FAA has uh, some terrible (laughs) explanations. They need to rewrite that book for their employees. 1961 saw the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. I am just about to get into my copy of The Interrupted Journey, which I hear is just amazing. It's awesome. Um, I can't wait. Anyway, yes, this one deserves a much deeper look uh, in another episode, but just popping it in there just to say it took place in 61. Um, oh, this one is cool. It's a very, it's involved. On September 3rd, 1965, an Exeter officer was on patrol just after midnight when he stopped to check on a lady parked on the side of the road. She breathlessly claimed that a flying object with red lights had chased her. A few hours later, an 18-year-old man came into the police station saying that while hitchhiking that night, he'd seen a line of five bright lights hanging out over a house about 100 feet from him before moving out over a large field and disappearing and reappearing behind a line of trees. The police went with the man to the site and witnessed the still-occurring phenomenon. Authorities would receive about 60 additional reports of UFOs in the Exeter area over the following weeks. Uh, Some of the best photos of a UFO were taken in 1966 by Ralph Ditter in Zanesville, Ohio. The photos are very clear and uh, like like they they look like a still from a movie so i i understand the skepticism <laughs> about them i don't know much about photographic manipulations or anything like that um i i am curious how he would have manipulated the uh, the photos that he snapped with his polaroid camera you know it was taken on a polaroid so i i don't know somebody educate me according to reports similarly described craft as what he got on film had been seen in the area months earlier with some reports submitted by credible law enforcement officials. At Malmstrom Air Force Base in 67, UFOs were spotted and nuclear missiles inside the facility were magically turned off. This is a really, really interesting event and it's got me thinking and theorizing about the nuclear connection. Is that weird? Um, 
you know, as we collectively see a, a, a ton of landings and crashes, they leave a level of radiation. And, you know, like sometimes uh, people who say they were abducted and sometimes they get tested and they show signs of like radiation burning and, and uh, symptoms of poisoning, stuff like that. And then we have cases like Malmstrom, um, you know, events reported around other military and nuclear facilities. And I, I seem to recall hearing, I did not read this explicitly, but I, I think I heard somewhere that UFOs actually were spotted around the time in the area that the atom bombs were dropped um, also. So I, I don't know. Is there is there a connection? <laughs> um, do you think it's just chance? Oh, just uh, something I'm thinking about. Uh, Betty Andresen was also abducted in 67. In 1975, Travis Walton was abducted from his job site and was missing for five days when he suddenly showed up along the side of a road. I got to watch Fire in the Sky again. Such a good movie. Ooh. Uh, but yes, we will be digging into the Walton story as well. 1980 gave us the Rendlesham Forest Incident, Britain's Roswell. The UK Ministry of Defense never investigated this event as a security matter, stating that based on what was said to happen, the event posed no threat to national security. This sighting was witnessed over the course of two days by multiple members of U.S. Air Force personnel. On December 26th, a security patrol saw lights descending into nearby Rendlesham Forest. They initially thought it was a downed aircraft, but upon investigating, discovered a glowing metallic object with colored lights. When they moved toward it, the object moved away and through the trees. Police were called. The assumption made was that the men all saw the lighthouse located miles away, shining through the trees. And that was that. After daybreak that day, though, the men returned to a small clearing and found three impressions in the ground in the shape of a triangle, as well as burn marks and broken branches on nearby trees. The police were called again <laughs> to see the impressions. The assumption made was that animals had made those. On December 28th, the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt, went to the site with several servicemen. They took radiation readings in the impressions and surrounding area. They recorded a higher reading in those areas compared to regions outside in the background level. During this portion of investigation, a flashing light was seen across a field to the east. According to a memo Halt would pin after the event, three star-like lights were seen, two to the north and one to the south, just above the horizon. Halt would say that the brightest of them hovered for two to three hours and seemed to beam down a stream of light from time to time. The assumption made about these from professional astronomers were that they were just really bright stars, superbly and thoroughly assessed, as usual. Okay, so this next one literally had me yelling at my computer screen as I was writing this down. So the general gist of the story is this. In 1986, Japan Airlines Flight 1628 was approaching Anchorage, Alaska to touch down. About 50 minutes to his airport, Captain Kinju Tarachi, who was sitting in the left side of the cockpit, saw unidentified lights out his side window to the left and just below their craft. With a military base in the area, he automatically assumed these were military craft and ignored them. They weren't. After a few minutes, he realized they were still there and were keeping pace with him. 
For the next 20 minutes, he would continue on to his destination, escorted by these strange lights just outside of his 747, and no one at ground control could see what he was seeing out of his window. But about 30 minutes out, suddenly a military radar controller who had jumped into the conversation and confirmed earlier that they didn't have any planes up at the time picked up on the target. Like they they had more radar capabilities and, you know, like different things that they could try. So finally they were seeing what Tarachi was seeing, what he was talking about. Okay, so um, I have printed the transcript of this almost hour-long radio conversation between Flight 1628, Air Traffic Control, the military uh, command center, and uh, like a- another flight that was up in the air getting ready to touch down. Dudes, ah, have you read the this memorandum, the memo? Have you read this transcript? It's... I feel like a, a like a crazy tinfoil hat person about it, but oh my god, it's just so it's cool. It's cool, um, man. Some of these stories of these events just blow my mind, and and uh, this is one of them. This is the one one that blows my mind. So I was going to uh, <laughs> read a couple of excerpts for you, you know, so that we could get a little a little gist of uh, what was going on. So for your entertainment, for your enjoyment. Here we go. A couple excerpts from the transcript. Uh, This first section is between 1628 and air traffic control. And 1628 is just checking in about this. Uh, So he goes, 1628, do you have any traffic uh, 7 o'clock above? Air traffic control says, say again. 1628 says, do you have any traffic in front of us? Negative. 1628 says, Roger, uh, we're in sight, uh, traffic in front of us, one mile about. Air traffic control says, Roger, can you identify the aircraft? 1628 says, uh, we're not sure, but we have traffic in sight now. Air traffic control says, Roger, maintain visual contact with your traffic. Can you say the altitude of the traffic? And 1628 says, same altitude, 1628. So he's just confirming it's at the same altitude as he is. The next section, they, they talk for a little bit more going back and forth, and uh, air traffic control reaches out to the military command center. Yeah, could you look approximately 40 miles south of Fort Yukon? There should be a code up there of 1550, and 1550 was the signifying code for uh, 1628. So he's referring to 1628. Could you look up there? There's a code up there of 1550. Can you tell me if you see a primary target about his position? Command center says, okay, stand by. Air traffic control confirms, you know, high altitude, 35,000 feet. So he's just confirming where to look. And uh, the command center says, okay, let me switch over to my other scope here. I'll call you back. Okay. So everybody's scrambling to figure out what this other thing is up there. It doesn't have a code that's like squawking back at them, receiving anything, and they're not picking it up on radar. All right, so uh, they do get back in touch. Uh, Air traffic control is talking to command center. Yeah, did you get another target up there by that 1550 code? I want you to keep a good track on there. And if you pick up a code and verify that you do not have any aircraft operating in that area, military. And the command center says, that is affirmative. We do not have anybody up there right now. (sighs) Okay, so a little while later, uh, 1628 is wanting to like deviate, like maybe uh, 
like evade the other traffic, maybe just like get away from them. So they go request deviate from object request heading 240. Air traffic control confirms uh, fly heading 240. Deviations approved as necessary for traffic. And then 1628 says it's uh, quite big. Air traffic control says, say again. <laughs> 1628 says it's, I think, a very big plane. Okay. So now we know it's quite big, whatever it is. All right. Last section I'll read. Um, is uh, near the end here. This is between air traffic control and 1628. And air traffic control is just, you know, once again asking him to verify, you know, can you see it? Is, is it there? Uh, so he says, 1628, sir, does your traffic appear to be staying with you? 1628 says, just looking. So at this point, he, he had taken his eyes off it and he couldn't see it. So he's just looking. Again, air traffic control says, do you still have the traffic? 1628 says, it disappeared. And then <laughs> command center jumps on and says, yeah, this is 1-2 again on some other equipment here. We have confirmed there is a flight size of 2 around your 1550. So now they have confirmed it's quite large. Now, when describing what he saw in a later interview, Captain Tarachi said at one point they were able to look at the object as it trailed them over a city, and he was able to make out a gigantic dark silhouette, he estimated, to be about the size of two aircraft carriers. During the flight, he coordinated with Anchorage Center, attempting different evasive maneuvers, such as flying in a circle and changing altitudes, only for this object to shadow him through all of the moves. After he tried the maneuvers, about that time is when United Airlines Flight 69 flew into the same air zone, and they were requested by air traffic control to get close enough to get a visual on the situation. And Tarachi reported that when the United flight pulled up in line with his plane, that's when the object suddenly disappeared. From his view, from radar, poof, just gone. Within months of the incident, Tarachi was allegedly banished to a desk job, which is uh, unbelievable, but also, you know, quite believable. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is this is why, you know, pilots never reported these things, these these events, these encounters, because you would be demoted. You would be fired. You were the crazy person when they literally got this thing on radar. They saw that it was humongous. They confirmed it. Uh, and, and his whole flight crew and him saw this thing. Like, I don't know. But whatever. He he was ultimately reinstated to his regular position. Uh, but, yeah, crazy story, right? It's, I don't know. It's, you know what? I've added it to my list of favorite stories thus far. It's, it's, it's a good one. 1989 and 1990 was the Belgium wave. 13,500 people witnessed this event, making it one of the most widely viewed UFO events in the modern era. At the end of 89, Belgium citizens witnessed a large triangular UFO hovering in the sky. And a few months later, new sightings of multiple objects were reported and confirmed by two military ground radar stations. Two fighter jets were dispatched to investigate, and though the pilots couldn't see anything visually, they did lock onto targets with their radar. 
but these objects moved so fast that the pilots ended up losing them. Belgian Air Force had no logical explanation, and it was acknowledged unknown activities had taken place in their skies. UK's Ministry of Defense investigated, but once it was determined there was nothing hostile or aggressive about these events, they stopped the investigation. In 94, in Rua, Zimbabwe, 62 children on recess at aerial school claimed that they saw one or more silver craft descend and land in a field near their school. Beings with big eyes and dressed all in black approached some of the children and telepathically communicated to them a message with an environmental theme. Skeptics of this event say this was all the result of mass hysteria. Upon later interviews with the kids, though, it was reported that the children were telling the same story and continued to recount that same story decades later. We already, of course, covered the Phoenix Lights that took place in 97. Uh, Illinois got hit with their very own Triangle UFO sighting in 2000. Multiple witnesses around Highland early in the year all saw the same triangularly shaped UFO. It was said to be about a thousand feet up, making no noise, seeming to be illuminated from within. One witness said it looked like a house up there with its lights on. 2004 was the Nimitz sighting and encounter that we talked about. 06 was O'Hare. A really neat one was sighted off the coast of Puerto Rico in 2013 called the Aguadilla incident. Customs and Border Patrol who saw this thing captured the footage of it. And their footage clearly shows this object to be one of those darlings of the five observables. It is transmedium, something termed a USO in the field, an unidentified submerged object. And it can effortlessly, quickly, capably move from air to water to air. Another cool detail about this footage and this event, the object, after some time, splits into two pieces and continues moving at quick speeds while it shifts away from each other. Strange stuff. Um, Plenty of skeptical shots have been taken. Did you know that this was actually uh, two Chinese lanterns tied together all along? We just we just didn't see them both as they moved along at 120 miles per hour because, you know, uh, perspective. I don't know. Um, Another shot is that it was a balloon. Well, luckily for everyone, skeptics included, because I know they just want to know what this stuff is just as much as we do. Uh, As of November 2nd, 2021, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies reviewed and rejected both hypotheses because the object was moving too fast to be a lantern, and it seems no actual valid balloon argument had been submitted to them. 2014 and 2015, the USS Theodore Roosevelt brought us the well-known gimbal and go-fast videos. As of 2020, along with the Tic Tac video, all three are still characterized by the Department of Defense as unidentified. In 2019, Navy personnel aboard the USS Omaha captured video of a spherical object flying over the ocean at a low and slowly descending altitude, before easing into the water and completely disappearing. No debris or wreckage was found. The object was moving too fast to have been a weather balloon, and it wasn't a parachute flare, as some have speculated, as it was moving horizontally across the water for a good amount of time until it disappeared beneath the surface. This video is still under review by the UAP task force. And rest assured that 
sightings are still taking place now, uh, that they are being captured on film right now. And uh, hopefully, if we're lucky, we'll all become aware of them soon enough if this list that we have just completed is any indication. I hope that you walk away from this episode today with a clear understanding that Yes, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, UFOs have been seen prior to the 1940s, and that the skeptical explanations, while they have a place in all of this and are important to our honesty, to our education, they aren't always so convenient. And I hope that you walk away with more assurance that the modern-day sightings have even more credence because they are part of a longer legacy of reports that have come before And that reports of old have just as much credence because they simply prefaced a phenomenon now taking place in the modern day that simply can no longer be ignored. People have been seeing strange things far earlier than the go-to explanations of today, such as weather balloons and drones and lens flares far earlier than the previous 75 years worth of go-to explanations such as planes and helicopters far earlier than that the go-to explanations were meteors and birds and even farther than that the go-to explanations of heaven signs from heaven and angels and weather based on those earliest depictions that we talked about today The stuff conceivably goes back to a time when people were literal with their art. They were creating visual representations of what they were seeing and experiencing. The skeptic had not yet evolved into existence. Um, These things were that people saw were just things that people saw without a need to question it. I propose that the objects that people have been seeing for centuries have not changed. The only thing that has changed is the scapegoat that people use in order to explain these objects away. That is going to do it for today's episode. We're going to quickly check in with Lost Souls Paranormal Detectives Jason Fife and uh, listen for that information about the giveaway and how you can win. And then we are going to bring this thing to a close. Yes, yes. We, we've got some stuff planned, um, some stuff going on. So we're hoping to hit some of the uh, the major, lo- I call them major locations, but the um, you know Waverly Hills and stuff like that. We're planning on doing, doing that this year. Nice, um, nice. We go to a, a couple of uh, the Paracons. It just depends. You know, we're looking at one in uh, Chicago possibly to go to, but we haven't decided yet. Then we have, uh, we've got to line up a big investigation. Some friends of ours, Southern Ascensions, have a, it's a theater that they're able to investigate constantly in Mississippi. So we're looking at going down there. Check that out, too. Right on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, so you got a busy year ahead of you guys. Yeah, we're, we're trying to mix it up a little bit and do uh, some main event places, but do more or more or the same amount of, um, I guess, not famous locations, more, mm-hmm. you know, just local investigations. Yeah. Uh, because 
because you never know what you're going to find when, when you're out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, you know what? If I were a, a ghost investigator, a paranormal investigator, just just full on, that's what I did. I, I mean, I'd be wanting to hit all of it. Yeah, of course, the big stuff. But like, you know, the point of it is, I, I'm sure you would agree, is I, I, I just want to I want to find that proof. I want to find the evidence. I want to get the footage. I want I just want that stuff. So you're going to get that anywhere, you know, just because a place is famous or well known right. doesn't necessarily mean anything. That's been some discussion here um, in the paranormal community or paranormal world. You know, these the haunted locations. And mm. There's been, I guess, and I, I try to look at both sides of it too when when I'm doing my my research or uh, my studying on it is you know we have a lot of teams that are paranormal teams now that are just they just go to haunted locations that that's it they they don't go you know they don't do residential or business or right. anything like that so I think there's not necessarily been a divide but it seems like a lot more people are moving that way. Yeah. Okay. Just to go to haunted locations, but when you have like your residential businesses in your community or surrounding community that need help with something, then it's totally different. Yeah. They're not uh, in a in a place where they can actually help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's already going that way, I'm sure we'll see a, an even further divide, a further split with that. You know, possibly uh, creating two very distinct types of investigators and you're either a you know a haunted location purist or you're a you're a, I, i'm here to help purists you know what i mean like right yeah it, we it love is. our it's... we love us some extremes yes yes we do yeah all right well well what have we got on the docket for today i'm very excited i don't know anything that you're going to talk about uh, all right first of all i would like to um i'm, I'm trying I, I haven't really decided how to do this yet but i purchased a piece of equipment couple months ago and it's called the X grip and it is basically a video camera uh, holder and it's used for films like for skateboarding snowboarding auto racing boating stuff like that and I went out on a limb because I'm like you know I don't do none of that stuff so you know it's a high action uh, device so I ordered us to let me try it let me see how it's going to work and I went to uh, Brushy Mountain uh, after Thanksgiving with, with my family. And I was like, hey, I've got this piece of equipment. Let me try it out. Da, da, da. It was easy setup and it really worked. My hand didn't get tired. My arms didn't get tired. It was comfortable to carry around. We were there for a couple hours. So I was surprised actually. But what I want to do is actually uh, purchase another one. So I'm going to be giving this one away. So Ooh. if you're out there listening or you know, if you're in a paranormal, not in a paranormal, first time you're hearing this show, um, I'm gonna actually, we're actually gonna give one of these away to uh, a fan. So, okay, okay. Well, uh, what uh, what do you want people to to do for it? To submit for it? Yeah, you can. Uh, what I'm gonna do is, since we're like halfway through the month, um, on February first, if you email me or hit me up on Instagram um, or you know my Facebook. Uh, one of the three locations, the first person that does that, well, I, I will actually get their information and send this to them. So you have to watch the show and you know, soon, soon as, and I'm putting a date on it because it's two by two, three, two weeks away, I guess. Mm -hmm. So February 1st, you know, if you watch the show, you know, like I'm saying, this is free. So there's no catches, you know, you don't have to pay for shipping, none of this other stuff. So I'll be sending it out to you. 
And I actually have it right here, and I don't know if you see it or not. Yeah. Uh, oh, right on. Um, so it's it's very nice. And the best thing about this was the affordability. You know, you don't have to spend a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, to go out here and do what we do because equipment is expensive. Right. So that that's a thing I'm always looking for. And, you know, if you want to contact me, uh, about equipment or if I've used it or not used it or you want me to try it, just, you know, hit me up and let me know because I'm always about, you know, trying new things or looking into equipment that we, that's actually beneficial. For, for what we yeah yeah you're you're a very good source um uh, for for really any other um paranormal investigators out there if you're watching the show listening to the show um uh you know look into uh jason fife and and his group um um lost souls paranormal sorry i blanked there for a second. Oh, lost souls paranormal um, but uh you know we've talked a few times before and and I, i'm just always kind of blown away with like the the tools that you guys use and the different uh techniques that you guys use and you know you're not you're not afraid to try something you know different you know what what works for you what doesn't um and just very open with that and open with that education which i appreciate and i love uh, and this sounds really cool. This fascinates me because that, uh, that's a piece of filmmaking equipment. I, I, I recognize that because we use that often back when I had a production company. And, uh, you know, if you're on an investigation for eight, eight plus hours yeah. a night, possibly, yeah, you're going to get tired. Your arms are going to get tired. You don't want to be standing there with your, your little... <laughs> I was going to say flip phone, but, you know, your camera, uh, you know, for eight plus Back hours, it hurts. So very, very good idea. Very good purchase. So folks out there interested in this giveaway, uh, this episode, I'm going to try to get it up this week. Um, if not, it'll be early next week. So that, that should give still give people plenty of time to uh, submit for that giveaway before the first. Yeah, that that's fine. I mean, that was that's one of the things that, that you know I was looking at when even being a paranormal investigator and being skeptical, you know, we're like that too with the, with the equipment, just like everybody else is. So, you know, when, when I found this, I was like, I can't believe I actually found something that works, you know, that was advertised as it should work. Right. And that was, I was excited because I want everybody to know about it because like you said, when you're out here doing this, your elbows hurt, your shoulders hurt, everything hurts. 8, 10, 12 hours, and, you know, this actually made it uh, easier. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. All right. All right. Uh, did you want to share anything else with us for your, your first segment on the show? Uh, just uh, like uh, Kristen was talking about a minute ago, just, just hit me up. Um, send me a message. Uh, add me on Facebook, Instagram. Send me an email. Um, I'm always happy to help. I've started doing some consulting. Uh, so... I mean, if you're out there and you go to, to you want to get into the paranormal or you're wanting to figure out, you know, what the best thing for you to do in the paranormal, because not everybody's a paranormal investigator. You know, a lot of times people just want to do the camera or, you know, they just want to do the auto recordings, you know, audio or whatever. I mean, that that's stuff that you know, I can help you with or, you know, I can show you how to do it. And I've actually, you know, considered having some classes if there's people interested that, you know, we can talk and discuss the right equipment, this and that. But like I said, just go out and have fun and, you know, in, investigate any chance of the paranormal that, that you can, because that, that's what it's at. We're all trying to figure out what's going on. 
you know, is is it is it real? Is it not real? Is it you know, it, it's always that question. So just go out and do it. Wonderful. Well, it was so good to have you on today. Thank uh, you very much. Thank you for doing this so much. And uh, I look forward to doing this regularly with you. I guess we'll we'll check in with you again next month. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, Jason. All right. Take care. Hey, thank you. You too. All right, folks, so to submit for the giveaway, contact Jason directly on Instagram at jason.5.75. He is on Facebook, just under his name, Jason Fife, or you can email him at jason575 at gmail.com. Be sure to mention that you heard about it on the show today. And after realizing this announcement wasn't going to post until a week after we recorded, we decided to give folks a bit more wiggle room to submit for this giveaway. So the cutoff date has been extended to Monday, February 6th. You got an extra week to reach out, but don't wait. Get in touch with him and get you a new piece of equipment for that upcoming investigation. I will include all of this info in the show notes as well for your reference. Thank you so much to Jason Fife and Lost Souls Paranormal Detectives for making this giveaway possible and for joining me on today's check-in. All I wanted to leave you with today was just something to think about over the coming weeks. I thought all of the accounts today were compelling for one reason or another. I personally am especially compelled and convinced by accounts like the Nimitz sighting or by uh, Flight 1628. You know, they're just so real. The details are so verifiable. There's so many people involved who can be held accountable. But there's still that skeptical side of me that just makes me hesitate. Um, For instance, something I noticed (laughs) during the research for this episode, uh, there were no documented abductions or even attempted abductions prior to 1896. And that's just so strange to me. And maybe, you know, it's possible that I missed the earlier ones, entirely possible. And that's where you come in. You know, that's where I depend on listener feedback, um, the literature and you guys, (laughs) you are my sources. Uh, you know, to correct me and to educate me, and I I always welcome that. There are a couple of quickly approaching episodes that might provide a little bit more clarification. Uh, We've got one coming up on abductions, just, you know, the phenomenon, who is it happening to, what's happening during, um, and also another episode on alien species encountered during these abductions. So, I am hoping for a lot more clarification at that point. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. And if you are on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed this show, if you are looking forward to more, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you are tuning in. It helps me out so much to find my peeps and to find those people who are just like me, who just want the basic information and to understand this just a little bit more clearly. That is a wrap for today. Join me Tuesday for another riveting conversation and, uh, you know, take care for now, everybody. I'll see you back here in a week. Until then, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 